0: You know Palm Sunday, and then the second cleansing of the temple on on the following day on Monday, uh, Tuesday, the Olivet Discourse you know Jesus, prophecy day. You know Jesus Jesus gives this amazing amazing uh, prophecy of the final judgment, his his return. Even even Wednesday, you know the the Wednesday of this of that Holy Week, uh, preparation for the Passover meal. Do you think? you know, what, is, what was that? What was Wednesday? But e- even, even that, Jesus telling Peter and John to enter the city and follow, you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water and follow him to the house that he goes in. You go into that house and ask the master of that, you know, tell the master of that house that, that I have need of the, of, of the room, you know, and then and the upper room, the... And the preparations for the Passover. You know, can you just imagine Peter and John telling the other fellows what happened? You know, he's, he said, just go into town. You're going to see a guy carrying a jar of water. Who? <laughs> uh, just amazing. And then on Thursday, of course, things really accelerate. Passover meal. What passed between Judas and Jesus? What passed between John and Jesus? Uh, the upper room. What what we call the Upper Room Discourse, which which occupied five whole chapters of John, five entire chapters of the, of the Gospel according to John, 13 to 17, including uh, Jesus' high priestly prayer in, uh, in John 17, uh, which, which in, in which he prayed for you and I, by the way, because he prayed not only for these who are here, but also for those who will believe through their word. And that's us. So he prays for us. And then, of course, Gethsemane—the events of Gethsemane—and Jesus sweating drops of blood in this agonizing in prayer. Judas' betrayal with a kiss. Jesus' arrest, including that ear surgery with uh, with uh, Peter. And the the um uh, the, the court the the the, the temple uh, official the temple police. And uh, and by now, it's, it's hard to tell when you pass from Thursday into Friday, but by now we're probably into into Good Friday uh, day filled with these illegal and corrupt religious trials, kind of passing the buck, state trials from uh, from Pilate to Herod, uh, Peter's denials, Jesus crucifixion between. To these and everything, everything that was said around that, and I I would like to be an eyewitness to to that and and to uh, have seen it. But then, you know, when I think that, I think, oh, I'd like to just seen that, and then it's almost scare myself because I think would I have would I have understood anything about what was really happening, and it scares me because almost nobody did. Almost nobody had any inkling of, of what the significance was. You know, at, at Palm, Palm Sunday, you know, that first Palm Sunday event, Jesus entering, they said, you know, they're, they're, they're saying the right things. They're saying, Hosanna, the son of David. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a messianic title. know, they're calling him the Messiah. They're giving him the royal welcome. They're fulfilling scripture. They're fulfilling prophecy that uh, they don't seem to know it, but they are. But then when they're asked, Matthew 21 it says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee, which is just it's such an immense understatement. It shows they don't they didn't get it. No, that's not. A, yes, he's a prophet, but that's not the half of it. It's not the quarter of it. It's not the eighth of it. It's true as far as it goes at it. You know, it's, but it's like saying that George Washington was an early official in the United States government or something like that. It, you just don't get it if that's what you you say. And I, I wonder myself, and I, I don't have any way of knowing this, but I, when I read that, they're, they're so clueless. I, I wonder how many of those people who were at that Palm Sunday event, I, I wonder if any of those made that later mob who was saying, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. The chief priests, well, they got it, you know, got it, you know. They understood in a way, but in a much greater way, much more profound way, they were more wrong than anybody, because they understood the significance of this of what was being said and done. They understood that when they called him the Son of David, that he, they're saying, you know, he's the fulfillment of of of, of the God's promise to King David. For a son who would establish the throne of his kingdom forever, they understood that clearly. They understood the implications of of the children of the, the the people saying, "Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord." They understood Jesus' claims. They understood who that Jesus was presenting himself as as uh, Israel's king, as pr- or promised king, and as the Messiah. But they understood it, but they thought he was a fraud, uh, a a fake. a a charlatan, a pretender, and they challenged Jesus, said, make them stop. They they didn't get it at all. They understood, but they did not accept it. They refused to accept it. Jesus refused, of course. Matthew, it says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, which is in the context, healing the blind and the lame on the temple uh, compound, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? He's saying, No, I'm not going to rebuke them. It has to be, I have to be praised. Uh, in Luke's account, uh, Jesus told the Pharisees, If these were silent, the stones would cry out. So, in a way, the religious leaders understood the significance of, of, every, of what was some of what was going on. But in a greater way, they couldn't have been more wrong. They were as wrong as wrong could be. And they, they stood right there at the foot of the cross. They stood right there and saw with their own eyes what was happening. And they did not see the Lamb of God taking away the sins of the world. You know what they saw? They saw proof positive that Jesus was not the Lamb of God. They they saw proof positive that He was not the Messiah. Otherwise, why would He be being crucified? Why would He being, why would He be uh, subject to death? Said He saved others. He cannot. He can't save himself. Let Him come down from the cross. We'll believe in Him. You remember that? They couldn't have been more wrong. Even Jesus' disciples who, who knew Jesus as Lord Christ, it just certainly appears when we read it because of the trauma of the arrest, the trials, the crucifixion. I mean, even though they're warned, even though Jesus told them what was going to happen there, they're, they're at least disoriented spiritually, aren't they? Peter, later after what we read, but... Peter thinks, you know, how he's, how do you process this? Peter just says, uh, he can't think of anything. He's just going to go back to fishing. Right? You remember? And it's, you know, he, Peter sounds to me like someone, he needs a year or two. He thinks it right then he needs a year or two off to think through all this, what happened. What's been, what has happened here? He needs time off to think through this. The disciples on the, um, in Luke 24, the road to Emmaus, you remember the disciples that, the risen Jesus meets and his identity is hidden from them for a time. What do they say, these disciples? We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. So they don't, they don't understand. Pontius Pilate, the one who first ordered Jesus to be scourged, beaten. The one whose order put him to crucifixion. He regarded Jesus as merely just an innocent man, or just a sad victim caught up in some Jewish religious controversy. And he said, we read in the scripture, he said, Behold the man. And that's exactly how Pontius saw uh, Jesus. Just a man. He's just a man. No, nothing, nothing more. So... Given all of the spiritual blindness and spiritual disorientation that dominated the atmosphere, I thought, you know, that's why I think if I was there, it almost scares me. Which group of those groups would I be in? <laughs> could, could I even hope to be in the one that God did as well as the Roman soldier who, we didn't read this in the scripture, but the one who said, surely this was the son of God. Even just that much. Or, uh, or the repentant thief who, who said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So I want to look at it. That's why we want to look at it as closely as you as you can and see what you should see here, because a lot of people didn't. (laughs) Almost 20 years ago now, my wife Robin served as a juror on a murder trial. Uh, Two men robbed and killed the owner of a small used car lot in Clinton. Surveillance camera captured most of what happened. Uh, you see the two men on the surveillance uh, video, the two, you see two men enter this uh, office of this used car lot. Uh, then the action moves off camera, but you can hear, you can still hear, the audio keeps recording. And you hear the initial small talk, and then you hear the demand for money, then you hear the sound of physical beating, and you hear something hard smacking against flesh. You hear the owner moaning, pain. Crack of gunfire, pow, pow, pow. And the camera catches the three men leaving the scene. And they, they, they actually thought to take the. It's VHS, a long time ago, VHS. They actually thought to take. They saw the, the camera and the and the VHS recorder, and they actually thought to take the tape, out with them when they left. But then they, they made a, a mistake of. They're driving through the country somewhere, and they just throw it out the window of the car. They throw it out, and and it lands on somebody's driveway, and and somebody, the guy owner, sees a VHS tape. He plays it, and he calls the. He sees what happened, what that tape was. He called the police, and the tape was invaluable at the trial. For one thing, made the identity of the uh, perpetrators unmistakable. <laughs> And secondly, it was the ultimate victim impact statement. <laughs> because now it's not, it's not just a newspaper headline, local man killed in robbery. It's like the jury was taken right there. And they heard it all, you know, the threats, and they heard the fear in the owner's voice, the moans of pain, the shots ringing out, the more groans, growing more and more faint, dying away. So, who would have the greater appreciation for uh, what happened? Uh, the one who read the headline, Local Man Slain and Robbery, or the one who heard that tape, saw and heard the tape? Well, the Good Friday headline is, Jesus died for our sins. <laughs> Jesus died for our sins. And of course, it's true. It's at the core of the Christian message, it's the core of the gospel. You have to believe it. Our salvation depends on it. But. But you want to also think of it rightly uh, to to get it, because it can lose its punch for us. Can't it? So he died. Jesus died for our sins, and it, we we've heard it so often, we've said it so often, it it loses its its punch for us. You know the. Uh, in looking for artwork for the bulletin, I don't have a well. Yes, looking for artwork for the bulletin. Uh, Cover, You know, we like to use our own and grab something online to use as our bulletin cover. Uh, one of the common memes, I guess you'd call it, that, that if, you, if you look up Good Friday, you know, on search images on Good Friday, is you, you see some sort of artwork, some sort of scenery, or some sort of highly stylized cross, and have the words on it, Happy Good Friday, Happy Good Friday. And, and that that's just an example. I you know if you think Happy Good Friday, I don't think captures the. I don't. If you're going to say Happy Good Friday, I don't know that you get, you get it. <laughs> I I don't know that that's the right uh, way to think about it. Uh, the late novelist Dorothy Sayers, she in her book *Creator Chaos*, she she writes this. She wrote, "Let's face it. The man we hanged on a cross was God Almighty." Unless we realize the horror, the weight of such an act, we cannot feel the extent and importance of this drama. I'm going to leave it to a crime writer, which Dorothy Sayers was, to to notice that what happened. That's a crime. It's a terrific crime. The greatest crime ever committed, from Judas' betrayal to the trumped-up charges to the blasphemy trials to the Mobs calling for Jesus crucifixion, the manipulation of Pilate, you know the humiliation to the humiliation of the Holy One of God, the sinless Jesus, humiliated, mocked, spat upon, stripped naked, beaten nearly to death, crucified but given a, a criminal's a criminal's death. Martin Luther. Once delivered a sermon that was right, aimed right at what we're trying to get at Good Friday. I, I don't know that it was a Good Friday sermon, but it was titled "How to Contemplate Christ's Holy Sufferings." And it's actually one of the few sermons. I, and I read you know, Puritan sermons and you know old, really old sermons. And and this it uses this sermon actually uses a word you, you come across once in a while in those older sermons: thirteenthly. Thirteenthly, it's in that sermon. Well, I'm not going to am not going to take you to 13. It's too much, but let me let me just suggest 3. 3. Uh, three things that we have to see when we look at the cross. First, we have to see the true measure of our sin. When you look at the cross, that's what you should see. You should see the true measure of our sin. As long as I've been a Christian, it's it's been the tendency. I think it's been the tendency of Christians and uh, to kind of soft sell the problem that the gospel addresses, to uh, which is man's sin against God. To kind of go light on that. Uh, we've made Romans 3:23 our go-to verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And sometimes, when I think when we use it, we we leave open the impression that maybe we've fallen just short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We almost, we just didn't, we didn't reflect the glory of God. We were just moral perfection is the standard. We just fell short of the standard. That's all. That's all you're saying when you say you're a sinner in need. You know, you just you just fell short. One of, the, one of the several Greek words for sin that appears in the New Testament, we, we've seized upon one of them, kind of made it our favorite, I think. Uh, hamartia. It means miss the mark. You've heard that, I don't know. Sin means, one particular word for sin in the New Testament means missing the mark. We've missed the mark. And once again, it leaves open the possibility or at least the idea that maybe we're just off the bullseye. We're just a half a bubble off plum. We're just a little off. We miss the mark. We're not perfect. You know, sometimes you know Romans—it's hamartia, miss the mark. Romans 3:23, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Sometimes in my witnessing, I've run—I've begged the question. You think, well, why is God so? Why is He such a stickler? You know, why is perfection? You mean because I need a Savior? I need Jesus to die for me just because I've—I've I've missed perfection? What happened to error is human. And, and it, you know, that kind of presentation, it's a, it's a long way from, well, it's a long way from, say, Jonathan Edwards, his most famous sermon, a couple lines. Oh, sinner, he said, consider the fearful danger you were in. It's a great furnace of God's wrath. And he said in his context, his just wrath against sin a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of God's wrath that you're held over in the hand of that God whose wrath you have provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about, ready every moment to singe it, to burn it asunder, and you have no interest in any mediator nothing to lay hold of to save yourself, nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing you have ever done, nothing you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. Well, that seems a little harsh, maybe you'd say, but is it harsher than this? There's none righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. The way of peace they they haven't known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Well, that's not some Puritan sermon. That's Romans chapter 3. Or or what what about these words uttered by our sweet Lord Jesus himself? (laughs) But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So so what is the true measure of our sins? We see it in the cross of Christ. I mean that the price that was paid is equal to the offense. You know, Romans three twenty three, perfectly good verse. We just need to keep reading another verse or two. Leave it in its context. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. That word propitiation means uh, that God's wrath against our sin was exhausted by the cross. God's wrath, that the price that was paid is exactly equal to the sin that was paid for, that was a... Atoned for. So, how bad is our sin? That bad? That, you know the an, how bad is our sin? What well, the answer is? What did it take to wipe it away? What did it take to remove it from us as far as east is from west? That's the measure. So, when you look at the cross, see that. I'll really just take a, a minute with these next two. But secondly. when you look at the cross see the true measure is much better news by the way see the true measure of god's love for you <laughs> because it's the same how much does god love us that much john 15:13 jesus says the greater love has no one than this that someone laid down his life for his friends, and he's speaking of himself, of course. So Jesus is Jesus the one? Jesus points to the cross. He says, "That's the measure of my love for you." And it happens; it, it, it's it, it's over and over again in the scriptures. You know this linkage between God's love and the cross, God's love and and uh, and the cross of Christ, God's love and the crucifixion. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only You see the linkage there? When, when did he give the son more than what he did at the cross? Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see it again? The love of God for us, the measure of it is the cross. Ephesians 5 two. walk in love as Christ as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for. Us. there it is again right again and again and again and again the New Testament links uh, God's love for us and and the, what's the what's the uh, what's the ultimate demonstration of that what is the what's the evidence of that that's the cross Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There it is again. There it is again. How many times is that? Six, seven, eight? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Yeah, you know, it doesn't say who loved me and prays for me continually before the Father. You know, who loved me and is coming back one day, or you know, it's it's always who loved me and gave Himself. So do you? So here's here's the question. Do you ever doubt that God loves you? I, and, and a lot of people do. Do you ever doubt that God loves you? Well, look, when you consider these these verses. You know, you may as well, because of this equation that's made again and again and again and again, you may as well doubt whether Christ died on the cross. Do you doubt that Christ died on the cross? I'd say everybody here would say no, no, I would never never doubt that. I would never doubt that. I would never doubt that Christ died on the cross for me. But they're the same. (laughs) They're the same. You can't doubt God's love for you. Yeah, because they're 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 the same they're they're uh, they belong together they're inextricably linked the New Testament links them again and again and again and again it doesn't want you to miss it at all don't miss this the cross is the measure of God's love for you for me it'd be a good question to ask wouldn't it it'd be good it'd be a good way to preach to yourself wouldn't it when you doubt that God loves you can, does can God really love me, considering what's going on? You does know, you have troubles in your life, or you know, or you or you feel unworthy sometimes? You know, can does God love me? Well, well, did Christ die on the cross for you? Yes. Same answer, both questions. And thirdly, finally, and I will only just take just a just a, a moment really here. When you look at the cross. You, you have to see the only way you could, you or anyone really, but you, the only way you could ever be saved. The only way you could ever be saved from sin and death. I mean, just when you just look and, and approach it by looking at what happened, what happened, these scriptures we've read, or what you know about it, or the ones we didn't read that you read, or just, the, just contemplating this cross, what happened? What God has done for us in Christ. Think about the depth of his condescension, the extent of his suffering, and all of it. The suffering, the, the, the trials, the, the, the mocking, the beating, the, the, uh, the, the crucifixion, the death, all of that. And think of it this way. Why would the Father have done all that why would the Son have done all that? Why would this, all of this, have taken place if there were any other way for for people to be saved from sin and death? You know, people think of it from a bottom up kind of a way, like like we're all trying to all different religions and everything. We're all trying to reach up to God, and God should take it. Uh, God should consider us all equal, and the, this way should be as good as that way, and all our attempts to reach God should be, God should take them, uh, regard them equally. But no, that's not the way to think about it. Just think what actually has happened. It's God reaching down. And why would God have done any of that? Why would he have subjected his only begotten Son, the Holy One of God, to that if there were some other way? And the answer is, he wouldn't have. He wouldn't have. Would you? Would you have subjected your son or your daughter to something like that? If there were any other way? The, the, the cross is what it took to save us. The cross is what it took to save us. And therefore, I'm quoting Acts 4, therefore, There is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So it's not, that's not fair. No, it's thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me by great salvation, so rich and so free. Let's see the worship team come up.